Fly fishing is fun. It really is. It's quiet, peaceful, not a lot of people around, and it's very relaxing. Very relaxing. It kind of evolved all from having a love for the finished work, and apparently is in my blood because I've always gone back to the canoes. I started reading some books about fly fishing and went out and got a seven-foot Fenwick fiberglass rod and tried my luck. And for the first two or three years, to be honest, I didn't catch a damn trout. And I said, you know, I don't know how it's happened, but I've gone from rolling stones to kidney stones in the blink of an eye. (laughs) It's like way too fast to ride. How did this happen? But it's been a great ride. Welcome to Flyline Podcast, where we enjoy the interesting stories behind the legendary guides and luminaries connected to Maine fishing. I'm Michael Jones. Today, we'll be talking with our special guest, Steve Brook. Steve was born in Colorado Springs, Colorado, and grew up fly fishing, skiing, and exploring nature with his family until they moved to Maine. In the summer months, Steve and his father would make annual trips to Maine to places like Muslet Bagantic, Middle Dam, and the Rapid River to fish, paddle, and explore the surrounding and wild places. Steve conducted his undergraduate studies at Colby College and eventually earned his graduate degree in fine arts conservation at the Cooperstown Conservation of Historic and Artistic Works Program through New York State College at Oneonta. Steve worked as a Smithsonian Fellow in the National Collection of Fine Arts. This evolved to him coming to the Maine State Museum, where he became a conservator and eventually a chief conservator, where he curated the Maine Sporting Collection. Think cane rods, unique small boats, as well as antique sporting photos and documents. Steve started a private fine arts consulting business, working with local museums and private art collections. Steve has always had an interest in advocacy and environmental issues. It was at this same time that Steve started working with a group of like-minded locals that shared his unique conservation vision. This group ultimately developed into what has become the Kennebec Coalition. In the early years of the coalition, their prime mission was advocating for the removal of the Edwards Dam in Augusta, Maine, to restore that section of river to its original and natural state. In this heartfelt conversation, Steve shares his memories and endeavors that reshaped the future of this unique environmental accomplishment of the Edwards Dam project and other similar projects since. Steve is an extremely motivated individual that is enthusiastic, positive, and understands the power and value of working cooperatively with others, overgoing it alone. Steve has a motivating message and is always kind and mindful in his delivery. His understanding of the environment and ecology is fun and inspiring to hear and share. And this is why he is a respected and luminous advocate for Maine Rivers. Steve lives in Farmingdale, Maine with his equally talented wife, Beth, and continues his hard work supporting efforts for river restoration and improving habitat for wild native fish through his careful advocacy. It comes with humble personal respect and appreciation to introduce an old friend and friend to the Maine fly fishing community to today's special podcast. Steve, welcome to the Flyline Podcast. Well, thank you, Mike. It's a pleasure to have you here at our home in Farmingdale. And you built this house. Yes, with the help of a a good carpenter who was a college friend, Leon. And um, he had one helper, and the three of us framed it up, did it in a year. Um, And it's a unique home. Well, it's a a solar home. It's a solar envelope house. It was cutting-edge technology in 1980 when we built it. And it, it, it heats the house 
and it has worked very well for us. And uh, we, we burn wood to stay warm beyond the, the, the solar, and it's a very comfortable space. Uh, we're sitting up here over the garage and in, in the office that has been my office for many years, and it's a nice quiet room, and I thought it would be the right place for a podcast. It is, and I appreciate that, Stephen. Um, just as, because you just uh, showed it to me, uh, you ha- you showed me your grandfather's personal fishing wallet. And I'm going to have some images on our website uh, to share with the audience to see what real traditional wet flies look like. Yeah. And thank you for sharing that. Well, thank you. Yeah, he, he was Arthur Sherman Phillips. He was a Fall River attorney. And um, he he grew up, he was in the class of 1871 from Williams College as a point of reference and uh, loved the outdoors and he loved to fish and he fished the the, came, the main New Brunswick border with a, with a group of Indian guides and I, I'm very pleased I have his fly book and I, that's what I showed you and it's mostly snelled hooks. My dad actually fished some of those hooks uh, in his lifetime. Um, my dad, well, I was born in Colorado Springs because my dad was stationed there for all of World War II. Uh, at the end of his terms there, he, he went to Japan as part of the strategic bombing survey. And when he came back, he was released. And so in the spring of, that would be 1946, he and my mom and I went fishing. I showed you a picture of me sitting on my mother's lap. And uh, that's probably a cutthroat. And that, that was always called Steve's first fish. Yeah, that's great. Which I thought was a sketch. The, 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 the reel on Dad's rod that, was, that my mother was holding was one of the old spring-loaded fly reels. Sure. That, as you stripped it out, you wound the spring, and then you had a little lever so it would come in. The automatic. Yes, yeah, so the automatic. And uh, I grew up fishing that reel yeah. um, with him. Yeah, that's a great. So Steve, I mean, because it's a... Uh, the audio podcast, but Steve did share some beauty, and he was a great photographer. Uh, you said shot in uh, Kodachrome. Yeah, he always shot Kodachrome. I have a number of his slides. He was an outdoorsman. My dad grew up in Providence, Rhode Island, actually in East Providence. Uh, my grandfather on his side was a plumber, and he had twin sisters. Um, he loved to escape Providence, and uh, as soon as he was out of high school and started working, he used to take the snow train out of Providence, Rhode Island, every Friday night. And he was part of a group called the Risky Runners, the Rhode Island Ski Runners. And they they had a cabin up in Pinkham Notch, and they skied a lot at Cranmore and the old Cranmore, you know, gondola line. Of course. Uh, I guess it was the snowmobile. Sounds right. I remember standing in line with him skiing up there. He loved to ski almost more than anything else. We were living in Massachusetts at the time, and we used to come up and ski the New Hampshire mountains almost every weekend when I was young. So I grew up with him in the outdoors, fishing, uh, skiing. He hunted too, but I never had a chance to hunt with him. He he died while I was still at Colby College. Mm-hmm. And um uh, that's one of the things that I, that I missed in my life. But your father introduced you to skiing. He certainly did. And you are and you were an avid skier. I don't know if you still ski. I was a very avid skier. Exactly. And we'll talk more about that. Steve, I want to uh, back up just a little bit, if you don't mind, um, back to our introduction. 
I was riding over this morning and and it occurred to me out of all of the people that I've interviewed in the podcast uh, in the last two seasons, I've known you longer than any of them. That's right. So I'm going to take you back to a time that you won't remember, but I will. Okay. I remember as a older teenager, I'm going to guess 16 or 17, going to Trout Unlimited meetings with my father. Mm-hmm. And you were there with Bruce Bowman. Thank you. Bruce Bowman. I think he might have been the chapter president at that he was. point. He and was. there were a lot of people around the table, um, but there was a lot going on. And that's one of the reasons that you made such a strong impression on me. Um, you you have motivation, uh, enthusiasm, and at the time, I was so impressed with how you were using science uh, to to bring out your argument and bring out your point. And we'll talk more about it in the second half. But I want I want the audience to understand that I've known Steve Brooke for a very long time, and I've always been tremendously impressed with your kindness and and just generally what you've tried to do in your legacy working in Maine and with Maine Rivers. And that's the reason you're here today. Well, I haven't finished. Uh, I know you have not. that's still going. There is. But I, I remember those days. Bruce was one of my mentors. He was a, a, a Bruce Bowman, who was the president of Trout Unlimited chapter, Kennebec Valley chapter of Trout Unlimited, worked up at the Bangor Mental Health Facility. And he was in charge of the outdoor recreation. But Bruce also was the kindest person, and he was always working for others. He uh, spent time uh, working for the, all the disabled groups. He was always there. Uh, I, I, I just can't tell you how much I miss him. He passed a little bit over a year, almost a year ago. I didn't now. know that. And um, uh, he is one of the people that I remember well and will always respect. Right. And we'll talk more about some of the TU work that you did. Um, but I want to go back to you you mentioned that you grew up in Colorado but then you moved to New Hampshire? Oh, uh, we actually moved to Maine. Um my, and my dad was released from the service in the spring of 1946. And they came back to New England. The only place they had to land was my mother's family's summer home in Kennebunk Beach. And and I grew up summers in Kennebunk Beach. Uh, I remember fishing with my dad. He he had a 12-foot molded plywood boat that he could put on the top of a car. Yeah. And we fished off the beaches. We fished uh, out around the spindles. We, we did a lot of uh, mackerel fishing. But even more important, we used to go down to the river that comes into the beach that's immediately south of Kennebunk Beach and uh, goes out of Kennebunk. And it, it's got dams on it in Kennebunk. But there were shad back then, and there still are shad in that river now. I'm thinking the Mousum. It is the Mousum. Thank you. That's the right name. Yeah. And so I remember fishing with my dad off the beaches. I remember <laughs> being caught offshore as a yep. massive, massive fog bank arrived. Mm-hmm. And we just went full tilt for the beach and ended up going through the surf and up on the beach just because the fog was so thick. Yes. Uh it, 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 there are, those, those are the things that you remember in, in your whole life, and they yeah. really make you part of what you are. I grew up in his small boats and paddling canoes and kayaks, and um, that, that's why I was so pleased to be able to come and work in Maine. Let's talk about your paddling. I know you've always been into floating around in a wooden craft. And, um, how did you get introduced to paddle sports? I was introduced to paddling out on Washington Pond, out in the town of Washington. I went to summer camp out there for several years. 
And uh, this would have been in the early 1950s. Um, and it was a camp that had a lot of very competitive people and it was all built around sports and the like. And that's not who I was. So I ended up working with the campcraft people and working paddling, and they were all wood canvas canoes at that time. There were rangely boats that we could row, and I, I fished every evening after dinner. We, I'd row across Washington Pond to an island that had a lot of bass around it, and I fished over there. I loved sailing. I, I, I did a lot of sailing that summer, and I, I was pretty competitive on, on the sailing, but that's about as far as it went. It's funny, I didn't know that. We have a very similar background. I worked at a summer camp as a counselor, and I worked. I taught sailing, windsurfing, did a lot of canoeing. There weren't any wooden canoes with canvas anymore at that point. But well, but it's it's it, it was it's a really good education. It's fun, it's fun stuff too, isn't it? Oh, it's a, it's a marvelous background to have, and all children should have that. Um, wooden canoes were not are not like the plastic ones. You you can't come and drag them up across rocks. And so you learn how to use balance, how to beach them, walk to the bow, go off while it's still in the water, and then pick it up and pull it up. And that that's something that stuck with me, and I, I do it with all the boats that I've built. And I, I have a bunch of wooden boats that I've built, but they're all wood epoxy boats, and they're hard as can be, tough, good good things. But they, they, there was a skill set that I learned that summer, and the summer is plural, and uh, it stuck with me. It also something else also stuck with me. Uh, one of the the other groups were there. There were there were four separate groups for age at the camp I went to, and the the older kids were the rangers, and they went out and traveled all summer. And so we'd hear stories about their trips at, at dinner when they'd come back. And one thing that stuck with me is that they all went and got junior main guides licenses after their summer event, and that's something that I always had a goal to do. And it's something that I was able to fulfill when I was working for American Rivers. I needed a guide's license because if you're taking people out and yes. you're being paid, you yes. have to have a license. Yes. And so I have a guide. I had a guide's license that I kept for a couple of decades. Yes. JMG is the term for yeah. junior main guide. Well, I, I actually got a full guide's license. Right. Of course. And it, it also included the commercial boating Inland water requirements. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Those are really good programs and something that people that spend a lot of time in the outdoors should think seriously about because it teaches you to not only understand what the rules are, but to be a competent waterman, to know the rules and the right of ways and all. And I see an awful lot of people driving boats around that really shouldn't be out there today. <laughs> yeah, you're exactly right. I, of course, have my, I've had my guide's license for most of my adult life, all my adult life. And I agree 100%. I learn every day. I continue to learn. But thanks for sharing that about your time in the summer camp. I think that that definitely set the cast for the person that Steve Brook turned into. So then you attended Colby College, Steve. I did. I did. I um, came to Colby College in the, the fall of 1963. Um, and it was a nice place to be in the 60s because it was out of the hoopah and a lot of the goings-on in the cities. It was the coldest place I'd ever been. The hilltop in Waterville where Colby was, especially during the two and three weeks of sub-zero cold that we had in those days. Mm -hmm. um, it was a very special place what to be. What did you study? I started out in economics because my dad wanted me to be in economics. And I, I 
just wasn't an economist. Uh, the best course I took at Colby, I took that was a business management and an accounting course, and I've used those skills my whole life. But beyond that, I, I actually wasn't doing well as a student, and I spent a year as a junior year abroad student. I uh, lived in Denmark, uh, traveled in Denmark, traveled in Germany, went from East Germany across Checkpoint Charlie while the, the wall was up. So I saw a lot of what was going on there. Um, and it was a very, very learning experience. I still speak a little Danish and I follow what happens in Denmark as a result of that. Did you have a life experience there that started to put you in a different direction away from accounting or? Well, I, I, I knew that I was very capable with my hands and I, I liked doing things with my hands. I, I probably shouldn't have gone to Colby. I should have gone to the North Bennett Street School in Boston and become a, a woodworker, carpenter, a furniture maker. But um, that's not what happened, and Colby never told me about that program at the time. I, I was an art major. I did fine arts. I uh, did a lot of welding, welded steel. I did a little bit of wood carving. I spent one summer up at the Skowhegan School of Painting and Sculpture. Oh, no kidding. Uh, I was there on a scholarship, and um, that was when I decided I wasn't going to be an artist either. So I left Colby with a, with a degree in fine arts and a minor in, eco in economics, and I went to Philadelphia and got a job in a big printing plant where I was eventually put in charge of the letterpress printing division, mm -hmm. technology that is gone. Sure. Uh, I had, I guess, nine or 10 men on the crew. There were four unions in that group. And it was very interesting to have this kid just out of college working with people his grandparents' age and parents' age. And um, I learned a lot about uh, how, how to be in charge, but to be someone's friend and to work with them rather than fight them. And it worked quite well while I was there. But I eventually went to graduate school and I, I went to... Uh, a brand new program at graduate school. It was in at that time in Cooperstown, New York, and in, uh, there was a museum training program in Cooperstown. But this was for fine arts conservation, and put, what fine arts conservation is is it takes what used to be the trade of restoration mm -hmm. and added science to the restoration. And I was in the first graduating class from that program, and so the. The coursework at, in, in graduate school was um, two-thirds classroom, one-third laboratory work when you were working on and with the artifacts. And you learned about the, the mechanics and science of deterioration, why things fall apart, how materials are compatible, how you can try to stabilize that incompatibility and what the limits are and what you can't do. And the program has since moved on to Buffalo and is now part of Buffalo University. Uh, that graduates 10 students a year, as it did back when I was there. But it was a very interesting program that ended up with a year being spent as a Smithsonian fellow. And I worked at the what was then the National Collection of Fine Arts. It's now the National Museum of Art. And... Um, I had uh, a, ma a master that I was working for who was a German, who was a very interesting person. But you, you, you get introduced to the real world of museums very quickly at a large institution like the Smithsonian. So I was able to attend courses at the Smithsonian that were designed for internal staff only. 
And uh, it was a really important part of my development as a person, but also with my understanding of the profession that I followed for most of my career. So just for the listener, Steve, define what an art conservator is. Well, and maybe you just did. Yeah, I, mm. I think that an art conservator is someone that's trained in the science as well as the skill of preserving cultural heritage uh, because they're conservators that work on historic buildings. Uh, I, I ran my own business for 10 years working on some of the painted murals. You're, you're from Mount Vernon. Sure, you yes. probably are familiar with the Very. murals that are part of that world. I think those are probably one of the first American landscape schools that mm -hmm. have ever – and they, they, they can't be shown as that because they're fixed. They're very hard to move. Yeah. And I have moved them. I've taken a set of murals out of a house and shipped them and gone with them to Vermont. Uh, so it's, it, it involves a little bit of engineering, it involves a little bit of uh, carpentry skills and good dexterity skills, it involves color matching skills. It's surprising how many people are colorblind. Yeah. Uh, and it's surprising how few people have fine motor coordination to be work, un work under a microscope yes. on something. And to be able to do that type of work. And that, that's what my formal training was. It's amazing. Oh, Steve mentioned the murals in Mount Vernon. I'll just mention, I have seen a, a number of them. Uh, grew up uh, near uh, Dunn's Corner and Wings Mills Road where there was an old tavern. The building was made in, I want to say, the late 1700s. And it was a traveling artist. Mm -hmm. They would go around and stay at these different places. There was another one over by the chimney in West Mount Vernon, too. Do you remember where the one that you removed was located, Steve? These are in houses that people, you know. No, this this one was at, at, at a home in Reedfield. Oh, yeah. And you're, you're talking about the Rufus Porter School of Art. Yeah. And he and many others had some stock things that they would do. They had stencils that they would cut. And they, they worked in a water-based yeah. medium. And um, uh, I, I've seen them that are just plain, but I've also seen them enormously detailed out. There's mm -hmm. a set of murals in Farmington and the upstairs of a building that's now a commercial building that Colby wanted me to bring to them. And I convinced them not to do it because they, they did multiple layers of wall paint, wallpaper on them. And um, I couldn't find a way to get the wallpaper off and keep the water-based paint on the walls so that they'd have had put was mostly a restoration as opposed to the original. But the what was unique about the series up in, uh, in Farmington, uh, it was a, a picture of the militia on the green and every face was different. Every face was unique. Amazing. So although they worked with stencils, if you were willing to pay for them to stay and to keep going, they could develop a very sophisticated work of art. Oh, I see. So the, the range that's there from just stenciled walls to stock, just kind of ge generic landscapes. I worked on one in, in um, Westbrook that was in oil medium uh, that had a uh, picture of the falls in Westbrook with salmon in the falls at Westbrook. So that was one of the overmantel scenes. Yes. Um, it, 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 they are truly an unusual work of art and something that most people don't understand because you can't see a number of them together. Right. They, they, they're fairly well fixed. So I think what we're talking about now is we haven't mentioned uh, you're now working for the Maine State Museum. 
Well, I was back then. Right. That's correct. So when I, in my last months in, in uh, Washington, the director of the state museum came down and recruited me to come up and join his staff at the main state museum, which at the time was a building with empty galleries. So I arrived at the main state museum in the fall of 1973. Mm -hmm. I lived in Hollowell several years. When I was in Hollowell, I met, I met my wife. I had a friend, we, we did music and we were doing music in bars and just having a good time when I wasn't at work at the museum. And uh, he was dating Beth's roommate at the time. And that's how I met Beth. Hollowell was really cool at that time, wasn't it? It's always been cool. It has, but it's it was... It's always been cool. It's always been an arts community, yes. even when it was the antique center of Maine. Yeah. I think probably two-thirds of the cultural patrimony of the state of Maine was sold through shops in Hollowell That's right. at that time. Yeah. Here's, here's something that will be unusual. I, uh, I was invited to come over to Beth and Vicky's home with my friend, and uh, we were to bring dinner. And so I brought moose which was not a legal kill at that time, but it had come from the freezers at the Maine State Museum from a moose that had been taken and uh, mounted at the museum. Yeah. And we had moose fondue for dinner. And I bought a pot of oil and we had lovely moose meat in the Nobody would ever had it before. No. And I think it must have made an impression on her. Oh, I'm sure it did. That, that's great. <laughs> but um, Steve, I do want to go back, if you don't mind, because there's another part of your, um, your career that I've just if you don't mind sharing, can you go back to your museum when you were working with the Maine State Museum? Can you recall any, you know, you were working with old boats. You were working with probably old fish mounts. You were probably working with old cane fly rods made by the historic makers. What do you remember about that? Well, we were building the Made in Maine exhibit, mm -hmm. which had was lower two floors. And the, the first thing that the director wanted to do was to have some industries that were part of Maine's culture. And he was thinking about what everybody else thinks about in big museums, silversmithing and gunsmithing. And some of the things that were done in the 19th century. And I said, why don't we focus on uh, the Thomas Rod Company, Bangor, one of the great rod makers. Um, even Leonard came from Bangor, of course. Um, and so I started assembling information about the culture and what that industry was at the time. And it's fascinating. The people that worked on these cane rods were able to make tapers of bamboo that were down to a hundredths of an inch. And when you think of a light tip taper and six pieces going into it, uh, it takes a lot of dexterity. It takes a lot of patience. takes a lot of coordination. What else goes with that? Musicians. They were all musicians. They all played in the Bangor band. Um, they were part of the community. And it, it, it's, it's really interesting. So I convinced him that we should go out and find the remains of the Thomas Rod Company. And I ended up down in New York State with the fellow that had bought it out. And I, I purchased from him for the state of Maine everything that he would sell. He wouldn't sell the tapering machine. I think it's still being used, but a lot of the hand tools, a lot of the parts and pieces. And uh, that's why the Thomas Rod Company was in made in Maine exhibit. And again, I was able to, at the time, go out and look for 
other parts of other collections. Um, Cornelia Thurston Crosby, mm-hmm. Maine's first guide, a woman from Phillips, Maine, who whose health wanted her to be in the outdoors, and she grew to love the outdoors, and she came at a time at the turn of the century, the turn of the 19th into the 20th century, when railroads were really big, and oh, the railroads loved her because she could go to the sportsman show in her green skirt that was ankle length, because it would have been awful to show you other than your ankle. And uh, she was a good spokesman. She wrote well, and she was a really interesting person. She was also a photographer. And her photographic collection is at the main stage. Oh, it is. I didn't know that. And um, since then, uh, others on the museum staff have written books about her, Mm -hmm. and she's a much more prominent person than she was in the 1970s as a result of that. Um, There were lots of things that happened at the museum. Um, I was drawn into an archaeological project that was something I knew very little about at the time, literally within Several weeks of the time I arrived there, what I was, was it, Steve? Uh, no, I was setting up. I was setting up in my lab, opening boxes of tools, and my director came down and asked me to join him in another room with a big sink. And I looked into the sink that had jet black water in it. And he reached down and he pulled out a piece of waterlogged wood and some corroded iron, and it was all from the shipwreck that was part of the Revolutionary War expedition where privateers came up the coast from Maine to try to push the British forces out of Castine. And it ended in the first naval engagement of the war, which the uh, Americans lost badly. The British ships were able to, you know, kind of literally blow them out of the water. One of them went behind Sears Island and was part of an archaeological project that I became involved in for about the next 10 years. Fascinating. And so I had to design new technology, new treatment technologies, and work on that as well as what I'd been trained for. So that the work at the Smithsonian had given me confidence and people to call and colleagues to work with Mm -hmm. to bring new technology. I traveled. I I got a grant. I went to, Mm -hmm. to a conference in Stockholm, Sweden, where they were working on the Vasa, which is a great Swedish ship that literally sank on launching and uh, was in Stockholm Harbor, but that was a national priority and they had hundreds of people staffed full-time for decades, which the state of Maine was unable to do with the defense. It was just not that important a project overall. Mm. So there have been a lot of things that I have done in my career um, that are just common sense things and it's working with common sense and science Mm -hmm to solve problems. Before we take a break, Steve, um, there was a period of your life, about 10 years, I know that you mentioned this to me before, where you decided to get into just just open your own consulting business. Mm-hmm. That and, came after I was laid off at the museum. Oh, I didn't realize you were laid off. Yeah, so this was probably I, following the McKernan. Well, it was part of the, the, the budget crunches and yeah. time. And at the time, we'd, we'd finished most of the work on the defense. Um, and uh, conservation just was not the high priority for the institution. So they laid me off and I had to scramble and set up my own business. Mm -hmm. And that's when I started working on the murals and I moved a set of murals from Reed Field over to Vermont. So you were commissioned by Colby College or commissioned by some gallery or or a museum? I I was commissioned by others to do work 
and worked in private. That's private practice. Yes. And I didn't want to set up a laboratory here because it, that, that would have been a very complex and expensive process. So I limited my practice to what I could do to stabilize things mm -hmm. and help things move forward. And I did that for 10 years, but I also started at that time to spend more and more time volunteering for a group called the Kennebec Coalition. And I think we'll get to that after the break. That's a great place for us to come back to, Stephen. I appreciate that. Thanks for sharing everything you did so far. This Flyline flashback focuses on the book, The Main Woods, written by Henry David Thoreau, originally published in 1864. Henry Thoreau traveled to the backwoods of Maine in 1846, 1853, and 1857. Thoreau wrote The Maine Woods telling of those journeys through a rugged and largely unspoiled land. His travels on each trip began by train, eventually switching to coach, and eventually on foot and over water by canoe. Thoreau commissioned his guide to carry the necessary provisions as well as lead the party through the river passages across the length of Moosehead Lake to Northeast Cary and across the Cary to the upper west branch of the Penobscot drainage, where they would ultimately paddle the Penobscot back downstream to Bangor, passing through what is known today as Baxter State Park and Mount Katahdin. In the book, Thoreau brings the reader along as he paddles a canoe, hikes mountains, dines on cedar beer, hemlock tea, and camped and lived vicariously through the companionship of his native Penobscot guide. In each of his journeys on these trips, Thoreau took extensive notes, capturing the place names given by the native guide, as well as the colonial names of places like Pine Stream. In this story, Thoreau tells about moose hunting, setting up camp, the running of rapids, porging of falls, as well as sleeping under a cotton tarp, until the tarp burned, resulting in the party sleeping under an overturned bateau. Throughout the story, Thoreau sprinkles observations about the thick forest, the sounds of the wilderness, and the wild creatures they encountered, offering the Latin names for the flora and fauna he was discovering and observing along the way. In the same story, Thoreau carefully combines his admiration for the wonders and complexities of nature and contrasts that with the destructive nature of modernism and taming the wilderness by cutting down the trees for profit as he observed firsthand through his non-approving lens as a budding naturalist. The author Paul Thoreau expressed Henry Thoreau's position best in that Thoreau's impassioned protest against the despoilment of nature in the name of commerce and sport, which even by the 1850s threatened to deprive Americans of the tonic of wilderness. Henry David Thoreau was born in 1817 in Concord, Massachusetts, and passed away in 1862, two years before The Maine Woods was eventually published and released to the public. And now, back to the second half of our episode. So, Steve, thank you for sharing all of um, that about your history and working as a conservator and working with a museum. But then you started working with rivers. How did that start to come into your orbit? Your background really, it wouldn't be a logical next step, but it, it certainly was a perfect fit for you. Well, one day when I was working at the museum, uh, I was lining paintings on a vacuum hot table, which means that you can listen. And I had a big radio system, and I was listening to a speaker from the College of the Atlantic. And it was a graduation address, and he challenged the graduates to give a year of your life to something you believe in. I thought, wow, that sounds pretty interesting. I, I, I can do something like that. So as we started talking about the Kennebec, 
and taking out the Edwards Dam. It all began with people like John McLeod, Peter Thompson, and um, two others that were on their way for a, a fishing trip, and they started talking about what, what would the Kennebec look like? What would happen to the Kennebec if we took the Edwards Dam out? Nobody knew. Nobody had the faintest idea how to do this. So the Edwards Dam effort started as a grassroots effort from the Kennebec chapter of Trout Unlimited. And you were a member. And I was a member, and I was interested in it. And I thought, I need to learn more about the Kennebec. I need to learn more about Atlantic salmon. So I attended a conference at L.L. At Beans, and uh, John Echeverria, who was an attorney for American Rivers at the time, and I started talking at lunch, and he said, you know, I've got a couple thousand dollars. I'll bet you guys could use that. I'll bet that you could use that as seed money and get, get going. So we formed the Kennebec Coalition, which is a coalition in name only. It's a coalition of convenience because it's so much easier to re refer to it as one group, but it's really Kennebec Trout Unlimited, sometimes National Trout Unlimited, but not always. Um, Natural Resources Council of Maine. Um, it started with American Rivers, and now it's Maine Rivers. And it started with the Atlantic Salmon Federation that had sponsored the conference there. Friends it's, of Merry Meeting Bay? No. Okay. It, it, it Friedman and its group were not part of it. And okay. that 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 was intentional on our part because yeah. we knew that if we made it too big, we knew that if we made it too complicated, we knew that if we made it too constrained, sure. it would be very difficult to do anything. Yeah. And the way it really ended up was Ron Kreisman, who was the general counsel at the Natural Resources Council of Maine and I, started kind of trying to figure out how we could really build a case against the Edwards Dam. We had a little bit of seed money. I was working as a consultant conservator at that point, and I just put the rest of the time that I had available to volunteer to put all of this together. So for the audience, um, what was going on with the Edwards Dam in terms of it? it, it we're th I'm thinking in the mid to late 90s, Steve. Mm. Oh, well, really, in the early 90s is probably when you started working on this. Well, when you start talking about hydropower dams, you have to start talking about the license that they get from the federal government because they get a long-term license. They get a long-term license that usually expires on a 40-year cycle. That's about what it was. When Teddy Roosevelt set up all of this way back in the day, the hydropower industry said, oh, we want these licenses to be forever. But Teddy Roosevelt said, no, 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 no. Rivers change, priorities change. You can get a long-term license so you can amortize all of your investment. Yeah. And that that's what it turned out to be. And um, the Edwards Dam's license to generate power was going to expire. And it was going to expire in 1992, actually. Okay. And um, they put in to renew the license. And the federal energy regulatory prices for process for licensing is complicated, and it takes years to do, and they knew that. And so um, the contract was extended to sell the power in the same way that the contract was extended to create a new license. Mm -hmm. And it took from the early, uh, from the late 1980s until 1998 to really work out with the owner of the dam mm -hmm. that it was in his best interest to sell it and it was to be sold to the state of Maine for a dollar. Um, 
He had the rights to all of the equipment on the site, and he held an enormous auction after the site was decommissioned on January 1st of 1999. And um, at that point, the state owned the Edwards Dam, the old mill site, which was in fact a hazardous waste site because of all of the chemicals that had come from the cotton mill over many years. And the mill had burned. And uh, the, that's how the Edwards Dam settlement finally was teed up. So I can see you making an argument during the licensing process that it's not generating enough revenue uh, in terms of its hydroelectric generation. When you compare that to the amount of environmental effect that it's having upstream and it's preventing anadromous and diadromous fish from traveling through. I'm going to wear my marine biology hat for just a minute. Let's yep. go back 30 years to my um, marine biology class with Dan Buckley up in Farmington. Steve, define for the, the audience, what is anadromous versus what is diadromous? And then that's going to open up a whole other. So, yeah, there, there are lots of fish that move between fresh and salt water, and it's always on their spawning run when they come to reproduce. The diadromous fish spend their life in Maine and go back to the ocean to spawn. And there's only one on the East Coast here, and that's the American eel. Um, there are a whole series of anadromous fish that spend their life in the ocean and come into freshwater to spawn. Mm -hmm. And they all go to different spots in the freshwater habitat. Uh, the American eel, heck, I've been fishing up at Baxter Park and uh, found American eel in the ponds up there. Uh, they go wherever they can to grow large and to gain weight, to be able to go back to the ocean as a silver eel and to spawn in the Sargasso Sea, halfway between Florida and Bermuda. Um, the other fish that come in go other places. There are some that don't go very far at all. They spawn right at the head of tide. Uh, the rainbow smelt is one of them, okay. which would be the siren smelt. Um, then you have the river herring, which are alewife, blueback herring, and American shad. They're cousins. They're very similar biologically, but they each use a different part of the ecosystem to spawn. Uh, the, the shad spawn in deep water that's slow-moving but has to be moving main stem rivers. These are fish that are active. They're three to five pounds. They're always on the move. They don't do well in small confined spaces. In historic times, uh, they went all the way up into the Sandy River. Right. And we have lots of historic reference on that, but the Edwards Dam stopped them and blocked them right there. Right. Um, so you have, then you have alewife. Alewife are go up rivers and streams into lakes and ponds where they spawn. They do broadcast spawning in the lakes and ponds. The adults drop out after they spawn, and the juveniles spend the summer and go out in the fall. Then you have the blueback herring. The blueback herring are riverine spawners, but their eggs are adhesive and clusters, and they attach them to rocks with free-flowing water. So when we were living in Hollow, Mike, yeah. one, one of the things that is most important in my development, Beth, before Beth and I were married, and it would have been in the spring, it would have been probably in mid-June, around the solstice time, uh, we were walking down along the Kennebec uh, in the evening, and it was at dusk, and we were kind of just exploring the town and enjoying the river. We saw two enormous fish side by side rolling in the surface film 
They'd come up and they'd roll, and then they'd disappear. And then a few minutes later, they'd come up and they'd roll together and disappear. I had no idea what they were. And the next day I went into work and I had coffee in the shop every morning with the crew that worked down there. And a number of them were registered guides, and most of them had grown up hunting and fishing Merry Meeting Bay. And I yeah. said, no, what the heck did we see? And they, they made me made sure that I understood what the size was, given the diff distance. And they said, those had to be sturgeon. I think sturgeon, wow, what a fascinating creature. And it came full circle for me last spring in June when I found I was the first person to call in uh, hundreds of sturgeon spawning in Cobbacy Stream. These are enormous fish. They're eight up to 10 feet long, maybe occasionally a little bit larger. And they were right underneath the 201 bridge spawning in a place that they've spawned since they've been here, not necessarily every year, but the name Cabasaconti is Abenaki, and it, it goes to where the sturgeon come or where the sturgeon can be caught. And I'm sure that what we witnessed last spring was what drew many of the indigenous people to the mouth of Cobbacy Stream. So when I was watching all of the sturgeon spawning in Cobbacy Stream last spring, there were thousands of blueback herring along the margins of the river, all spawning at the same time with the sturgeon in the deep water and the blueback herring up on the edges. Again, using the free-flowing water with oxygen to keep oxygen in the eggs until they can hatch out and go downstream and grow up larger down below in the estuary. So what has changed in Cobbacy Stream that allows them to come back? Well, the major change was the removal of the Edwards Dam because the Edwards Dam impounded and made inaccessible most of their spawning habitat in the Kennebec. So when Edwards came out in the summer of 1999, the next spring, the sturgeon went all the way to Waterville. Yes. And since then, their population has just exploded mm -hmm. in the Kennebec. And I think that's the biggest major change. But there could have been a number of other things that would have impacted that site because transportation built a brand new bridge over Cobbacy Stream a year ago. Okay. So there was very fresh gravel, ah. which is one of the things that sturgeon look for. Um, we had very high flows that time of the, the year last year, yes, which put a lot of water in Cobbacy Stream. And it was really interesting because uh, what, what got me to go there was there were, there were fishermen fishing for striped bass on the flats down in the Cobbacy Stream just before when it goes into the Kennebec. And they were fishing for striped bass that were there feeding on blueback herring. Yeah. which is another one of the alewife-like creatures, but they spawn in the river. Their eggs are adhesive. And the, the, as we were watching the sturgeon, I couldn't help but notice the hundreds of blueback herring that were spawning at the same time on the edges as the sturgeon were spawning in the deep water. Incredible. And the sturgeon's eggs, it's really interesting. They're, they, they float downstream, but they're negatively buoyant. And so within 100 yards or less, They'll land on the bottom, and they have to land someplace where they're not going to be covered by silt. Yes. And in 10 days, they hatch out. Oh. And 
they float downriver and into the estuary. And the Kennebec is such an unusual river because there's an archipelago of islands that goes south from Bath on the eastern side of yes. the Kennebec. Yes. Uh, the Back River, the Sassanoa River, uh, the river, the, the, the Sheepscot River eventually. They're all interconnected in there. Yeah. So there's a lot of saltwater habitat with tidal estuarine situations yes. that give place for these little teeny fish to grow up and sturgeon grow very, very, very slowly. They'll grow an eighth of an inch a year or an inch a year at most when they're really, really big. The sturgeon that we watched spawning were between 15 and 20 years old, and they live up to be 75 years old. Wow. And uh, so I think that the, the, the Kennebec on the sturgeon uh, go together and I've, I've watched the, the Atlantic sturgeon along the beaches of southern Maine and the surf feeding down there in the summer and then the estuaries down there in the summer. But they come back to their spawning habitat. They come back to where they were spawned to reproduce. And because Edwards Dam was removed, the, the sturgeon population in Maine is doing very well. The reason I ask, Steve, is for the audience, the Cobbesee County stream is below the Edwards Dam. Yes, it is. Significantly. Yeah. So really, it's we're talking more about if you just, uh, I can't think of a good analogy, so I'm not, I'm just going to say remove a dam. Upstream of another resource, you can affect it positively. It doesn't necessarily need to be, uh, that was accessible for my entire, it, it's always been accessible. Mm -hmm. There's never been a dam below Cobbesee. That's right. But there's several dams on Cobbesee. Yes. Right. I mean, I kayaked slalom rates down through there yep. years ago, and yep. there was a d that, number of dilapidated dams that I had. That, to, isn't that a great piece of whitewater? You know, th yeah, that's got a lot of potential. It really does. <laughs> and, you know, not just for fish, but in, in a lot of ways. But um, I used to go down during lunch hour <laughs> at, mm -hmm. at the museum. Yeah. And we could paddle Cobbesee Stream twice. During lunch hour. During lunch break. And I'll tell you, I don't know where you put in. We put in above the railroad trestle. Yes, we did too. And that turn against the concrete post That's in it. the middle of the river yeah. in an 18-foot canoe oh, yeah. is exciting, yeah. I have to tell you. The race would begin. I want to say there's a dam above the railroad. The, yes. It's a metal railroad trestle. Well, it's a wooden one. Wooden, wooden one, okay. Yeah. And then there was a pylon right in the center of the river. That's correct. And then the race ended down just above where uh, the A1 diner would yep. be. Yep. So. The Edwards Dam, you felt, was going to open up 19 miles, Steve, 17 miles? What is it? Yeah, well, seven, it's about 17 miles between the Edwards site and the Lockwood site yeah. in Waterville and Winslow. Right. So the audience doesn't know. Steve really talked in the first part about being, you know, his work with art and work with the museum and being conservator. But I know, Steve, that you really have a reputation in our community and in the state and you have a legacy of being someone that really kind of lived in the crossroads between understanding what you just talked about, explaining, understanding, having a passion for understanding migratory fish and migratory species and the impasse of what they need for reproductive success and the, the physical barriers that stand in the way, but the, more importantly, the p potential opportunity that you could see through your own lens and you saw something living above Edwards Dam and you've seen other places around the state where you said, aha, if we do this, I think there's a real positive potential here. And you were motivated, driven, and always have been to get the word out. Yeah, I'm an advocate. I do advocacy. I'm not a, a fisheries biologist. 
I try to communicate the importance of these sea-run fish so that everybody understands what we're missing. They're what are called keystone species. All the river herring are keystone species. That means if they're not present, the ecosystem changes dramatically. Uh, we've lost a lot of our offshore fishery simply because they don't have enough food to eat. And a lot of most of that food, actually, in fact, came from the rivers. Those big fish offshore used to come to the mouth of the Kennebec, the mouth of all of the rivers, to, to really gain weight to hold over winter sure. as all of these juveniles were migrating out in the fall. Mm -hmm. So that there's, that there's known science and understanding. And, you know, in the case of alewife, as an example, We've lost 97% of the biomass of alewife along the Atlantic coast. Mm -hmm. um, think of what that means. These are fish that feed everything. They're, they're great to eat if you've ever had smoked river herring. They're, they're delicious. They're a little bit on the bony side, and you've got to get, be able to pick them out of your, to pick the bones out. But um, for years, uh, river herring were exported uh, to feed plantation slaves in the south. That was the main export know. value of alewife and, and probably blueback herring as well. Barrels by the thousands. And in fact, Canada buys as many alewife as they can get. Right. And they can them and they send it to the Caribbean as food aid where they're in high demand. So people learned about these fish for generations and they still are in demand. Mm -hmm. Um they, they make the ecosystem complete. Come to the Kennebec during the run of alewife, and you'll see bald eagles. You'll see minks. You'll see otters. Mm -hmm. You'll see everybody coming to the river to partake of this biomass of fish that came in. And in fact, in historic times, all of Maine's indigenous people really lived off of these fish for a good part of the year. You go up Cobbesy Stream up into Anabesicook Lake, and there's an island that was a an indigenous processing plant for drying fish. Why an island? Well, because there were wolves and there were other creatures that would have harassed them had it been on land. Interesting. And they figured it out immediately. So, Steve, now FERC, Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, has not granted a license for uh, the Edwards Dam to continue. You had a green light at that point, you felt, for the potential of literally removing the dam. You had stopped the, the the licensing of the power, but now you have the challenge of removing the dam. And that's when I really had a front row seat to watch you and the Kennebec Coalition and my local chapter of TU, the Kennebec TU chapter, really doing a lot of things. Do you, What do you remember back then? Well, it's important to remember it wasn't just me. No. Um, we had a, a team of pro bono attorneys that met weekly to develop the strategy and move forward. And we identified the need to identify a funding source to pay for the removal uh, long before we actually had a settlement. And um, at that time, Bath Ironworks was moving from an inclined plane shipyard to a land level facility. And they had to disturb what was Atlantic salmon spawning habitat in the main stem Kennebec to dig out a hole deep enough for a dry dock to be able to launch a ship. And um, they decided that they were going to dedicate that money in a dedicated fund for the removal of the Edwards Dam. And that was done after a large group of NGOs who they called on had recommended that as the priority 
for mitigation for the BIW plant. So we were as surprised as anybody else was when the, the vice president from General Dynamics on a radio program one Friday afternoon announced that they were putting a large amount of money in a dedicated account to remove the Edwards Dam. You must have ju just danced the and. We thought it was pretty well set up. Uh, we'd attended a lot of meetings. We'd talked to a lot of people. We'd developed a lot of understanding of why this was important in that community that was looking at sturgeon habitat. It wasn't only that. They did a lot of other local habitat restoration area over on the Sassanoa River and the bridge that goes up under Route 1 <laughs> that they're, they're going to re be rebuilding this coming year because of <laughs> sea level change. Uh, but all of that was something that was part of the effort of the Kennebec Coalition, and it was a very important step along the way. One of the things I remember, Steve, is that listening to you and others talk about, um, hey, guys, when the dam comes out, there's a few things that we're going to need to have volunteers moving muscles and clams. And you were also doing a lot of slideshows about what you felt the potential shoreline, how it would regenerate. To tell tell our listeners a little bit about you know what you were explaining to people about what was going to be expected yeah. the day the dam went out following after that. Well, it, it, it again, it's all part of an ecosystem, and the dam that had in, been in place for over a hundred years is going to have changed the ecology of the river significantly. And in fact, there were some endangered listed freshwater clams that were present in some of the habitat of the impoundment. And the water level was going to change and their habitat was going to be dewatered. So we asked for volunteers to come up and help dig them up and move them down into the lower level of the river when it had been returned to its real banks. Everything in Maine is a little bit different than some other big impoundments. Here in Maine, we have run of river dams, which means that the amount of water doesn't change because the dams are there. It just impounds them and it makes them deep. It makes them stagnant. In the summer, they're a lot warmer, so they have less oxygen. And the change from that to a fresh, freely throwing river is very dramatic. We really didn't know what to expect. Right. Nobody had ever done something like this, as large as this, on a major main stem dam mm -hmm. anywhere in the world that we were aware of. But I tried hard to get some science in place before the dam was removed, but nobody would commit to doing it because we hadn't got the settlement inked in, on paper. The removal and of the dam was, was, was unprecedented. It was unprecedented. It, it was an international priority, and it's something that we should all be very proud of because we've started something that can be made better. Uh, as we were understanding how this was going to happen, we could think of lots of things that could be different. Uh, impoundments have mostly worms rather than uh, aquatic insects. Aquatic insects support the fisheries, so the fisheries is different. And um, But we didn't really understand how quickly it would come back and how it would change. Uh, we couldn't find science that was willing to take the risk of undertaking two or three years of study not knowing if the dam was going to come out. So we had to just proceed anyway. Um, the spring after the dam came out, the total insect biology 
increased hundreds of folds. Right. It was more than anybody had ever seen mm -hmm. in a river. And it's truth to the, the saying, you know, nature abhors a vacuum. And in fact, um, what it was being sent downstream from above the impoundment was mm -hmm. adequate to not only populate, but overpopulate mm -hmm. the free-flowing river. And that tapered off over a period of five years, and now it's just the typical free-flowing river in a stable state. So, so what, just for the audience and the listeners, uh, when they're trying to establish the health of a river, I can't think of what the term is again. There's an acronym for it, but they'll put a, almost like a, a gravel pen in the bottom of the center of the river, and they'll count the amount of caddis, mayfly, stonefly. And that's what Steve's talking about in terms of the measurable health of a river improving. Yeah, Department of Environmental Protection has standards for this. Mm -hmm. And it really is governed by the oxygenation and temperature of the river. Impoundments can't hold the same oxygen that a free-flowing river does. Free-flowing rivers tumble over rocks is always engaging and putting more air into the water. And that's what the cold water fish that live in that system need to have. Mm. So the, the rock basket is a, a test that Maine Department of Environmental Protection uses to determine part of the water quality mm. of a river. And I see them a lot on the Androscoggin. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty interesting. So I, I think that a lot of the lessons that were learned with this precedent-setting effort at the Edwards Dam make me think about some of the mentors that I had to work with along the way. Because it was the Natural Resources Council of Maine was part of the Kennebec Coalition, they assigned three board members to meet with me on a regular basis. And they were, you know, Bill Townsend, uh, John Lund, and Ed Riggs, three people that I respect highly. Bill Townsend uh, was an attorney in Skowhegan. Uh, who just loved river herring and, and worked hard his whole career to restore them, primarily because river herring are critical if you're going to have Atlantic salmon in the river. Um, John Lund, um, attorney in Augusta, who's the publisher of the Maine Sportsman still, turned into a very close friend. In fact, both Bill and John were very close friends. John is still with us. Um, I used to fish Atlantic salmon with Bill Townsend up in, up in Nova Scotia. And we'd go up into either New Brunswick or Nova Scotia, and he'd, he'd rent a, a property for two weeks and have a number of people that were interested in coming for three or four days come up. And that was a tremendous learning opportunity for me. I got to talk to people that really understood the species, and uh, I got to catch a couple of Atlantic salmon and um, um, decided that they are better released today because they need this the energy that they have to be able to spawn. I don't want them to waste it on just being caught and released for fun. Um, John Lund and Bill Townsend and I, with John McLeod and with Peter Thompson, formed a group early on before we started really working as a Kennebec coalition. And it was called the Kennebec River Anglers Coalition. And we met in John Lund's living room and we just tried to suss out and figure out what needed to be done next as we went through the Edwards effort. And this was grassroots democracy at its best. Peter Thompson and I worked with people like Ira Ellis, who was the director of the Maine Cooperative Extension Office in Augusta. And we actually put forward two publications that Peter Thompson illustrated 
one 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 of them was uh, what are the fish of the Kennebec? Nobody ever looked at the fish of the Kennebec, and we did profiles of all the species of fish as just information for the Augusta community. Uh, we then did a second publication the second year of what are the questions that needed to be answered before we can remove a big dam on a main stem, and. Um, uh, so Ira was a, was one of the mentors leading us through this process. Uh, the Kennebec River Anglers Coalition uh, was, was short-lived because it was subsumed by the Kennebec Coalition as soon as the Kennebec Coalition. You guys were brainstorming. Is what you're we were doing. brainstorming and trying to understand what needed to be done. But again, it came from the people at the grassroots who'd originally thought about it because that was you know John McLeod and Peter Thompson and uh, Dan Kamen and one other person, they were on a trip up west or up north to go fishing one day together. And they, somebody asked, gee, why is the Edward Dam still in the river? It's generating virtually no electricity. Um, why is it there? And, and that's where the idea came from. And, then, and that idea was sold as a project to the Tenebeck chapter of Trout Unlimited. And we, we spent a lot of time raising funds and talking about the issue and educating the community of the importance of restoring this ecosystem. So Steve mentioned John McLeod. And John McLeod, at the time, was owned of the little fly shop that was in Bel Belgrade and then ultimately moved to Hollowell. But John was probably the ambassador fishing below the Edwards Dam. He was the guy that had the intel on what was going on. And he was a really, really outside-of-the-box thinker. Yeah, John was a Vietnam vet who came to the Augusta area and set up this, his shop. He had the first drift boat I ever saw in the state of Maine. It may have been the first drift boat being used on it, the river. And he used to row from his shop in Hollowell all the way up to Augusta as soon as the shop closed every day. Wow. And fish below the Edwards Dam until dark and float back down and be in the shop the next morning early to open the shop again. That's a long row. It's a long and challenging row when you get above the bridges in Augusta because it, it, it's quite a bit of velocity up in there. You John was very strong. You can snake up through there. I can see how he could do it. And, and I fished below the dam while it was still there because you had me take a number of people out in the process, media mainly, yeah. uh, to have them see what this dam looked like. And it was a big, it was a wide dam. It was a large structure. And I remember, and I know you were there, I don't, can't remember if we talked that day, but watching uh, Bruce Babbitt and Angus Kings, and we all stood on the West Bank and watched the excavator operator just take the first bite out of it and watching it flow. And you're right, a year later, and I want to tell you this to you because this is, I want to say thank you. A year later, I'm in the springtime, I'm coming down through to Six Mile Falls, and you know where the cable car that goes across the river is just above that. I'm anchored up. I'm with a couple of guys from Harpswell and a sturgeon, yeah. it had to have been six or eight feet long, yeah. breached the water. And I mean, if I had my oar out to the side, it would have hit my oar blade, yeah. scared the daylights out of us. We didn't know it initially what it was. I thought it might've been an Atlantic salmon, but it wasn't. It was absolutely an Atlantic sturgeon. And, that, and then the next thing that happened is we dropped down below Six Mile Falls mm -hmm. and we proceeded to catch what? stripers yeah. a lot of them yeah. and then we start to drop down a little bit below that and we start to catch what does jim thibodeau refer to as uh poor man's tarpon the what are these guys with the square mouth herring is it 
Yeah, they're 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 river herring. Yeah, and they're probably American shad. American shad. That's it. Because they're three to five pounds. Those are exciting. They, they're known as the poor man's caviar. That's what I'm thinking of. And, yeah, and they're they're marvelous fish. They fight like like bananas, and if you go up to Waterville today in the right time. You can probably catch twenty to thirty fish that'll strip you real bare right in half a day, and we were doing that, and it was a blast. So now, I mean, there were it used to be just a smallmouth fishery above Edwards, and it turned into all you didn't know what you were going to get. That's right. Well, and, it's a dy- it's a dynamic fishery that has repopulated the river. Now, the fish are there; they want to get to the habitat that they need to do. Yeah. And the, the fact that they've survived for over 140 years uh, of, of of the impoundment of the Edwards Dam, they they they've actually had adequate habitat downstream in Merry Meeting Bay, and then the streams that go into Merry Meeting Bay to have a a little bit of population that was still there. But uh, American shad came back primarily because of uh, effort stocking. Uh, a lot of those fish came up from um, Connecticut River and were raised in a hatchery uh, by Sam Chapman down on the coast. I mean, the, the effort here goes far beyond any one individual. It has been an enormous effort by a lot of people that continues on this day. What's your vision for the Kennebec moving forward? I'd like to see free-flowing Kennebec as far as Madison, Maine. And the reason I say that is because the spawning habitat for Atlantic salmon in the Sandy River is unlike any other spawning habitat in the state of Maine for Atlantic salmon. It's at high elevation. It's up in Phillips. It's up all the way up into some of the tributaries that go off the Sandy and Phillips. That's right. All the way down up in uh, to, to all of those tributaries, there's a lot of habitat. And there's been a big investment already in place in terms of protecting the land from development. Um, the Atlantic Salmon Federation is doing a phenomenal job doing some small dam removals above Farmington. Mm-hmm. And all of this is in preparation for uh, getting Atlantic salmon to swim on their own rather than being trucked around mm-hmm. four dams that give very little power and uh, do a lot of damage to an ecosystem that could be vibrant. Can you imagine the precedent that you'd be setting for taking out low-head, low-capacity dams that are on the coastal plain along our rivers? We've lost all of the fisheries in our rivers on the Connecticut, in the Merrimack, uh, all of the big rivers south of us. um, They've failed to create functional fish passage at dams. And it's not surprising because it's not just fish passage that's needed. The fish have to get up there quickly because they're starving. They're on the spawning run where they do not eat. They have to carry all of the biomass that they need to go to spawn, which is very, very hard work, and then to get back to the ocean before they feed. Instead of sitting below a dam trying to find where that ladder is. That's correct. And it's finding where the fish passage is that's the major problem. And that's because these rivers flow a lot, and the fish are going to go to wherever the water leads them. Um, it, it's very interesting when you see a site like the Lockwood Dam 
Uh, once a year, they have to, or they've had to. Where is the Lockwood Dam? The Lockwood Dam is between Waterville and Winslow. Thank you. And it's an L-shaped dam that goes across the river. It's long, it's complicated, and it creates an enormous amount of spill. And how those fish are going to find a little teeny entrance on the east side that's to a fish lift is beyond anybody's comprehension. And find it within 24 hours, because that's about all the time that they can spend in warmer water looking for something before they can move up into cooler water in the pools and free-flowing rivers that can be above it. So is the Lockwood Dam the first dam in Waterville, or is it the Hathaway Dam? Or Well, the, the Lockwood Dam is the first dam okay. on the Kennebec. So today. that's where you're, they're, they're getting trucked from there, then? They're getting trucked from there if they find an entrance to an elevator that leads to a tank, yeah. that leads to a truck yeah. that can take them upstream. Yeah. And to rely on humans to do something that they want to do on their own doesn't make sense ecologically, and it doesn't make sense cost-wise. It's cost-prohibitive, and it's something that the hydro industry has successfully argued against for a long time. We had more returning Atlantic salmon than we've ever had this last year on the Kennebec. The population is there, and it's ready to build. It needs access to its spawning habitat. So along the way, Steve, you don't want to take as much credit. You want to distribute it around, and, 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 it's, and it deserves to be distributed around. But what were some of the lessons that you learned along the way? Well, when we took out the Edwards Dam, we had no idea how it was going to react, how the Kennebec was going to react. And, and we've had phenomenal success with some of the river herring that can get up into the, uh, the, the Sebastogook River. We've had enormous success with the Atlantic sturgeon and the short-nosed sturgeon. The populations of them are coming back dramatically. Is an interconnected ecosystem. And I think that we've got to start learning from things that we've tried in the past that haven't worked. Uh, we've tried single species restoration. Well, a lot of these fish have evolved together over thousands and thousands of years. They're co evolved species. Uh, take clams, for example. Uh, freshwater clams don't move very far. But they only move one direction in general, and that's downstream. How do the juveniles get back upstream? Well, somehow they sense the presence of incoming sea-run fish before they release their spat into the water column. And their spat connects to the gill rakers on all of these fish, some of them just one species of fish, and they go upstream with the fish. So part of having clean and healthy water is having all of the clams to do the, the, the filtration of the water because their impact is enormous. There are some that live in lakes and ponds. There are some that live in rivers and streams. They don't live in the main stem Kennebec simply because they can't get there. And it really is an impact on the water quality. I think that our world is really like a spider web. And when we touch one part of it, the whole thing can wiggle. And Touching one part of it could be eliminating a species from it. And that makes the whole thing different and collapse. I think that big projects like the removal of the Edwards Dam, like the work on the Penobscot that tried to create fish passage around multiple dams, are really worth the effort. And I think that 
we think too short term. The indigenous peoples have always thought in terms of seven generations when they talk about impacting the environment. What is the impact going to be in seven generations from now? We're too focused on the dollar and the short term impact of things. So I guess I'd ask us to be much more thoughtful of what we're doing that can change things and how, if we change them, we can bring them back to a balanced situation. You're never going to get it back to the way it was. I think that partnerships work. This is something that the Kennebec chapter of Trout Unlimited brainstormed up with the Edwards Dam. And we formed a partnership with the Kennebec Coalition. And the Kennebec Coalition that we had during Edwards has evolved. And now we have different groups involved, but the effort is still the same, and that's to restore the sea-run fish to the Kennebec's ecosystem. I think that the partnerships are important to build, even if it means making compromise. And you, you can't expect to get it all at once, but you can make it better at each stage as you work on this. And it's going to take effort and time for people over a long period of time. And I think that we have to be much more thoughtful as we pick projects to work on. Um, it's, it's very nice to be able to engage ourselves in easy-to-do projects like planting trees along river banks to stabilize the banks in high water flows. And we're going to have a lot of high water flows as the climate continues to change around us. We've had like nine inches of rain in January so far. I mean, that's pretty amazing for a half a month, especially in midwinter. That's yeah. very different. And I think that we've got to look ahead and be informed, understanding what is the best information available today, because that's going to change moving forward. So approaching it thoughtfully, approaching it with science that helps us understand where we are today and being open-minded to understand that that understanding is going to change as we move forward. We're working to restore fisheries in Cobbacy Stream. Uh, we've got three dams that are still present in downtown Gardner. Uh, one of them holds back Pleasant Pond, and that's never going to come out. You have to have fish passage there. Why do you say it's never going to come out? Because the real estate values around that pond ah are high and they create a tax basis for the communities that own it. That's why there are three municipalities that own that new mills dam. Uh, and I think that it's important to recognize the reality of uh, some dams you're not going to be able to take out for multiple reasons. Okay. So you have yeah. to find ways that will work. And that means using most of the water that comes over the dam to create the fish passages that are needed so the fish that can get there. The middle dam there is licensed by the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. It generates a small amount of electricity. Uh, that dam has in its license with the federal government terms that require them to build fish passage when the fish arrive at the base of that dam. So we go downstream and we have a dam that is an early paper mill dam from the 1840s, one of the earliest paper mills in the state. and it's made out of granite, cut granite rock. It's stable, but fish can't get past it. I can take you there in the spring and I can show you that dam covered 
with baby American eels trying to find a way along the wetted section of the dam. That dam kills all of those eels because they end up being eaten because they can't get upstream. Uh, That's wrong. We need the eels in the system to be part of the ecosystem, to do what they do for the ecosystem. We need to have the other herring that are blocked by that dam above that dam. So we're trying to make a settlement somehow that will help the river's ecology Mm -hmm. and the ecosystem become better because the Cobbesee watershed can create an enormous run of river herring that can feed the offshore fishery, that can feed the birds of the air, that can feed the people that care to eat alewife, and that there are markets for all of those things. Mm. So thinking through the whole, working at it consistently, being patient, and understand that you can only take one step at a time, but you've got to keep at it. You've got to keep working. You cannot give up. And I think that's my message to people that want to be part of this, because we can make a difference. We've proved that you can do it with Edwards. I think the owner of the Edwards Dam would just say today it was the best thing that happened to him because he was able to come out with an enormous amount of revenue from all of the artifacts that, or the equipment that was there. He probably got a good tax write-off by mm-hmm. giving the site to the state of Maine. Uh, there are benefits that come with dam removals for dam owners. And I think that that's what we need to be able to balance the generation that they provide with the impact that they provide on the ecosystem. If someone wanted to do, if they're listening to this this podcast conversation and they wanted to do something meaningful, Steve, what could they do? Well, you'd become involved. You just say, I want to learn about this. And you start asking questions. What's there? Why is it there? How does it work? Does it work? And then you start building the grassroots around you with others that think the same way so that you can go to the state agencies and you can say, gee, we have a group of a thousand people that want to do this. How can you help us make this happen? And I think that it's a combination of helping the agencies that control all of these functions understand what the people want to have done to make it work for them. And I think that that's one of the grassroots of democracy and what really can work. It sounds to me like that commencement speech that you listened to from the College of the Atlantic was a life-altering experience. It started to guide your principles. You've been a pillar of influence in my life and for a lot of the main guides that know you and and people in the fishing uh, community. You have passion, Steve. You have core principles. You've done a lot for advocacy, your understanding and learning. I mean, you're not a scientist, but you've learned a tremendous amount about the ecosystems, especially along the Kennebec. And you spoke about the web of diversity and how it's all interconnected. And I just think it's magic what you've done, not just you, but the group that you've grown around you. And I, I just want to applaud you for the work that you've done. And you are you will be going down as a legend and as a luminary for the Kennebec River. And thank you for joining me today. No, thank you, Mike. That's very generous. That brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you for joining us for this intimate discussion. And thank you for listening to Flyline Podcast. A new Flyline Podcast episode will be released every two weeks on Tuesdays. So be sure to come back to meet our next famous guest. Until then, this is Michael Jones, and we invite you to visit the blog section of our website to enjoy photos and contributions from our guests and experience all of our episodes at flylinepodcast.com.